from Booksmart Studios, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, these days, some of you probably know, I'm writing pieces for the New York Times. And in the New York Times, not long ago, I wrote a piece about the new, new usage of they. And as you might imagine, I like it. Well, I've gotten a lot of very interesting feedback about my take on that. I wouldn't say hate mail, just mail from people very urgently telling me that I'm probably making a mistake, that I don't understand the full import of the call to use they in this new, new way. I'll let you know soon what I mean by new, new. I thought I would dedicate this episode to a response to people who just can't get with the new, new they, and it's not because they don't understand that language changes, but they see this as societally different from the way language generally changes. Folks, I get you, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about they. It's a word that's been uniquely subject to transformation. There's always something going on with they in English, it seems. Way back in Old English, the word for they, for one thing, was not what you'd expect. You'd think that it would be something like dag or something. No, it wasn't. The word for they was here, of all things. Here. And so you just had to make do with that. And I say make do because here is they, he is he, and she is her. So all of those are a little ominously similar. He, her, here is he, she, they, in the earliest English that we know. And if you talked about to them, like, you know, give them the log, give the log to them, then it was hem, just as it was in the singular. And so hem to him, hem to them. So there was a lot of this similarity, and it got really bad, because as you might imagine, he and he, he and she, there were people who would say just he, for she, but then you've got he and he, meaning both he and she. Hardly unheard of in languages, but this was a language where it hadn't been that way before, and of course these things are different from dialect to dialect. So people would have known something is falling together. And then he, well, after a while, you say that over and over, and you might get he, 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 that was falling to sound like he and she too. This falling together would have felt funny to some people. And even if they weren't thinking of it consciously, it's the sort of thing where if English is the language that you're speaking and English used to be a certain way, you might want to fix that. So you've got this here that's just become hey, and you've got the same word for he, she, and they. There are languages that do just fine like that, but English hadn't been one of them. Now, the old story about what happened to they in this situation is that English grabbed a word from Old Norse. The idea is that starting in 787 CE, I still think of it as AD, but I'm told I have to say CE these days, the Vikings come, Scandinavian Vikings. They don't speak English, they speak Norse. And it's mostly men. They marry English-speaking women. And next thing you know, there's this entire boatload of Norse words that come into English, including, you know, get, happy, neck, skirt. All of these are Old Norse words. They weren't originally in English. Well, it's supposed to be that something else came from Norse, and that is they 
their, them. Because in Old Norse, the word for they wasn't this here thing. Well, no, wrong voice for Old English. Yeah, it wasn't that. In Old Norse, it was their, their, not they, but their. A whole lot more like what we're used to than this here thing. So it used to be thought, by many it still is thought, that English borrowed these pronouns from Old Norse. Now, I'm getting to something here. I'm not going into the weeds. I'm, I'm getting to this for a reason. It turns out that if you really look at that situation closely, and not many people had until relatively recently, the truth is that English didn't go grabbing pronouns from some other language. English used itself for this they. Old English had goofy gender just like so many of the languages that you learn from English and are frustrated by. You had masculine, feminine, and neuter, and for the most part, you just had to know, and then there was plural, which was all three. But this meant that you had four thes. The was different if you were in the singular, masculine, feminine, neuter. Then there was a plural the. That word was tha. And if you really look at how things appear in the documents and when and in what form, it's pretty clear that they came from this word for the that you use with a bunch of things. So the ducks, you know, the Atari sets or something like that. That the became they. So what happened is that the language in a sense needed or at least wanted a separate word for they and it lost it and so people were looking for some other one and they went somewhere else in the language and they grabbed a word that roughly meant the or if you stretched it it kind of meant these and those. This is a theory that is put forth most cogently, for those of you who are interested in these things and wondering where I'm getting it, by Marcel Cole. But it is gaining increasing influence. I very much support it. And this is why I'm harping on it. Many people have written me that we need to create, for example, a gender-neutral pronoun. So it can't be he, can't be she, shouldn't be they. We need to have something else. And so they're, you know, popular alternatives such as Z. And the truth is, people have been trying to create these for a very, very long time. There was a certain efflorescence in the 70s. One suggestion was heesh. That's he and she put together. It would be very interesting, but you know, the truth is, pronouns are seeded so deeply in our cognition. We use them so much. They label something as elemental as the other people in our lives and their relationship to our us and our usness. It's really hard to borrow pronouns from another language or to just create a new one. How do you slide that in? How do you start all over again? Of course, there may be people or even subgroups who are particularly interested in using this new word and they will put themselves to doing it. But especially in a large society, how do you create new pronouns? In terms of how languages affect each other, they affect each other all the time, but they don't usually share pronouns. That's kind of like people sharing the same toothbrush. And so, in a way, what really happened in Old English, which was not grabbing something from Old Norse, but almost certainly grabbing something from Old English itself, it means that if we're going to solve our problems with pronouns no longer seeming to correspond to the way a critical mass of people see themselves in a modern society, probably we need to recruit something that's already in the language rather than trying to create something brand new. Now, what I don't want to do here is repeat the show that I did on They before. I did an episode of Lexicon Valley a good while back now, 2018. It was called The Rise of They. 
I know that not many of you have listened to all. This is the 138th episode of Lexicon Valley that I've done. Goodness gracious. Some of you have, and I am immensely flattered by your obsessiveness because you're like me. You're a completist. I listen to every episode of things, too. Most people haven't, and I can imagine most people weren't listening to this in 2018, but I did do it, and very quick summary is that the first they problem that people think of is what used to be called good old singular they. And so tell each student that they can hand their paper in when they want to, and that leaves you to not have to specify whether it is a boy or a girl or anything else, and you just have this generic reference. You're not being specific. And so a person can't help their birth, that sort of thing. That was from Vanity Fair, and it's a hint that singular they isn't something that happened when apparently everything fell apart after the 60s when people started using marijuana more openly or something. I don't know what's supposed to have happened recently that means that language just falls apart, but if Thackeray was already saying a person can't help their birth, you know that there's probably something about just the nature of English where if you're looking for some sort of generic gender-neutral pronoun, well, you take it from the resources, the language itself, and it is they for us. And it actually goes back to the 13 and 1400s. You've got it in Shakespeare. You've got it in Middle English. It doesn't even sound quite like English. Only in the 1800s did certain always self-appointed grammarians decide that they didn't like singular they because they is plural. And they're asserting this like it's something as undeniable and basic and unitary as the nature of protons and neutrons or something. They is plural. Well, you know, good for you. They said that. But in the meantime, people have kept on using singular they. But now there's what I sometimes call the new, new they. And this is the one that I wrote the Times piece about and that seems to be eliciting some emotional reactions. And again, not from people who don't like language change, but from people who think that this time it's different. And so I refer to Roberta wants their hair washed now. They're waiting downstairs. And this doesn't mean that Roberta is waiting for some unspecified people who aren't her to have their hair washed, but the they is Roberta. Roberta wants their hair washed now. They're waiting downstairs. Roberta refers to themselves as they. Or you might say Roberta refers to themselves. I suspect that's the way it's going to go. Roberta refers to themselves as they. So it's that new they that seems to really bother some people. And yeah, this is new. I didn't encounter it until not a few years ago, but a few more than a few. And you have to wrap your head around it. If you didn't grow up with it, I should say that the kids are using it quite fluently, which shows that it's hardly incompatible with human cognition. But nevertheless, this they is very, very different, and it's ever more common. So, Sunny, non-prescriptive linguist like me says, well, this is wonderful, this is interesting, things like this have happened in the past, language always changes. And then you get a whole bunch of mail saying, you know, Professor McWhorter, I like, but on this one, I think that you're missing a larger context. Interesting, very interesting. And it's clear that the people who are writing this are very and genuinely upset. Oh, wait, yeah, you're right. In terms of the pacing, of a Lexicon Valley episode. It's time for a little break, not for a commercial, but for some sort of song. I have it as um, Roberta wants their hair. I don't know why, but whenever I think of the new, new they, I think of Roberta. And it has nothing to do with any Roberta I know. Roberta D'Alessandro, if you're listening to this, it's not you. I've just got this generic new they person, and her name is Roberta. Well, you know, there is a musical called Roberta, 
and it's from 1933. The words are by Jerome Kern, and the lyrics are by Otto Harbach. Many of you know Roberta as a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film, and you might think that that was just written for them, but no, that was a Broadway property that was fashioned into a film for them. That's why they're kind of subsidiary in the film. But it was a show, and in any case, what didn't make it into the film, but what is in the lovely show score, is this madrigal. It's this choral piece. I've always liked this almost more than anything else in it, even though it's got a lot of songs in it that are famous, if you like the American songbook. This is the madrigal from Roberta. This is a newish recording of it in its original arrangement. Just listen to these beautiful voices doing this beautiful, plummy harmony together. This is the madrigal, sometimes known as Alpha, Beta, Pi. When you look for brain and brawn, brain and brawn, brain and brawn, on your vision there will dawn Alpha, Beta, Pi. And swear that a place its name on top of the road of fame. We'll crab a comet's flowing tail, flowing tail, glowing tail. Take the ocean for a pail, filled with flaming tide. This time really different. Well, one thing that you might insert here is that having the same word in the second person for the singular and the plural, that felt weird to people when it started. That was something that was going on in the middle of the last millennium. And the idea that you say you to one person as opposed to thou, that sounds so antique to us now, but that's how English originally was. In Old English, that word was thu, thu. That was normal, as it is in languages in general, if you think about it. What's a language you know where the word for you is the same in the singular and the plural? Note that you have to unlearn that. Now, some of you who speak Hindi might be thinking that it's that way with your language, and really, Hindi and English are the exceptions that prove the rule. Normal languages have a separate word for singular you as opposed to plural you. And so... There were people who didn't like you being extended to the singular in this way at first because it felt strange. And this is something that's important. A lot of people are telling me that they don't like the new, new they because it's being imposed, that it isn't a natural development among the population. Instead, certain people are saying that it has to be that way. But you know, although the details are unclear, this use of you in the singular was something that came from on high. That is something that happened in the standard. Thou persisted and has persisted in very casual usage in a great many Englishes that are not 
prestigious in England, for example. A good example, actually, is if you read Lady Chatterley's Lover, I get the feeling that ever fewer people are actually reading it, but my mother, you know, as a young woman, reading those sorts of five-foot bookshelf kinds of books, although that book was not one of them, had back in about 1960 before she married and had children and also had a whole career. But when she was a young woman and she had this copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover, it was a very nice edition. So I happened to read it kind of early because this book made you want to read it and it's also a little bit dirty. And so you find these things. And at one point, the groundskeeper says to Lady Chatterley, he says, ah, the moon come to the cottage one time. Okay, so the moon the moon. What the hell does that mean? It's thou must, the moon. He speaks this Nottinghamshire dialect. And so thou must come to the cottage one time. He wasn't trying to sound like he was in some silly play using archaic English. That thou was part of the local dialect. But no, in English, you know, the you ends up coming from the plural. And there were people who resisted it, including the Quakers. Quakers continued using thou in the singular. They found it more humble than this idea that everybody would be exalted with this plural you. I went to a Quaker school as a kid, and I remember some of the teachers were using thou, thy, and thee. Don't forget to put thy name on thy paper. I remember that said to me. So these things can be imposed. That's happened in the past, but more to the point. Many people find the new, new they to challenge ready online understanding. Yes, that's true, especially if you're not used to it. You can hear people using it that way, and they're talking about they. And you're wondering, well, who, what, what two people? What three people? Or maybe you're waiting for it to be the generic old-fashioned singular they, but that doesn't quite make sense in the context, and then you have to wrap your head around the idea that one person who you all know is being referred to as they instead of he or she. And people are sending me whole paragraphs where you, know, you have to work to figure out what they is. And I can understand that frustration. Context can take care of so much, though, as we know with you. Really think about how odd it is compared to any other language you know that we say you to one person and you to two or three. And admit to yourself that sometimes it's even a little confusing. I sometimes will say you and realize that in my language I can't specify that I'm talking to one person rather than both of them, such as, for example, my two daughters. And you know, you get by because that doesn't happen enough to matter. And my horse sense is that it wouldn't happen enough to matter with the new, new they once we got used to it. But, you know, maybe there is a transitional strategy or maybe there is something practical that we can do to alleviate that feeling among people. And this is my proposal. And maybe it's been proposed elsewhere, but if it has been, I am definitely putting my hat into the ring for it. Maybe in writing, the new, new they should be capitalized. This kind of capitalization can be quite arbitrary. For example, you know, the way we capitalize I, that's not necessary. If we didn't capitalize the pronoun I and it was just lowercase, what else would we think it was? And yet we're used to that. Why don't we capitalize they when it refers to one person? In writing, you can't capitalize in speech. But if we're going to use it in writing, and we most certainly will, we must, then maybe we could capitalize they when it refers to one person. And here, we wouldn't be doing anything new because this is something that happens in various languages written in Roman. So in German, for example, you almost might wonder how they deal with the fact that Z, that's S-I-E, Z can mean she, 
it can mean they, and it's the formal way of saying you. Talk about how weird these things can get. Complain about how new, new they is different and it's confusing you. But think about German, and Germans seem to get along just fine, but Z is either she, they, or you as in sir or madam. The way that you handle that in writing is that the formal Z is capitalized, so that helps a little bit. Or another example is in Italian. Italian has lei. Lei is she. Then it can also mean formal you. Think about how odd that is. You know, those of you who've taken Italian, you're so used to it, but think about how weird that actually is. This is just the way pronouns tend to be. They don't accept being put in little cages. But if lei means she and then also means sir or madame you, well, then the way that they handle it is that when it's the formal you, then it's capitalized. So you have a capital L. I wonder if we could use a capital T with they, not to indicate formality, but to indicate this new usage of they. So it would be a singular usage. That's just my proposal. I think that might be something useful to consider, and I'm putting it out here now. Let's get to what many people would think of as the meat of this issue. Many people are saying that they don't like this new, new they because a minority of people are insisting on being addressed in a certain way that everybody else finds quite counterintuitive. And the sociological tenor of society is such that if you don't do it, in many cases, you'll be given a very hard time. So people are saying, why should we do this just because people are demanding it? I feel manipulated. Okay, this is how I feel about that. It seems to me, first of all, that having a pronoun to mark non-binary identity could be seen as pretty basic. It could be seen as something that a critical mass of people could agree is a moral advance. If you think about history, if you think about what seems to be the case in all cultures, there are people who feel like they're neither male nor female. They're people who feel like the categories of boy and girl just don't fit. Now, cultures vary widely, but just about any culture that I've ever had occasion to study has some room, usually some quiet room, for people who just don't feel like that kind of categorization works. The non-binary person. Why can't our pronouns catch up with that? And, of course, many people seem to think, well, in terms of basic plumbing, there's the boy kind and the girl kind, and it's clear that people are born, except under extremely irregular conditions, with one or the other kind of plumbing, and there you go. So why are we being asked to model our language based on something that some people feel we should look at, that some people feel we should look at despite the fact that it doesn't seem to correspond with the way nature supposedly had it, or something along those lines. But you know what? That doesn't convince me either, because think about formality. Think about that in a language like French. You have tu in the singular, informally, but then formally you use the plural form vous, because there's vous, your teacher, as opposed to tu, your friend. 
Okay. Well, that's based on these issues of hierarchy. Now, in a small band of humans, which is how we began, there's a tiny bit of that, but not much because there, you know, there are only a hundred of you. The idea that you have people above and people below, you know, let's do our Rousseau, that's what happens with creeping modernity. And next thing you know, you have these codes as to how people address one another from up high down to below and from down below to up high, etc. That isn't the way things started. It's something that happens in a society because of a kind of a gradual accretion that nobody ever plans. And yet, languages are full of ways of indicating formality, including the one that I'm speaking. We just accept that. It seems to me that if that's seen as a refinement, just like, you know, the development of something called cake, or like tea, how did anybody figure that out? We're going to take these leaves and burn them in the sun and then boil them in water and we're going to pretend that's good. I just, that's, I actually like tea, but still, that's odd. Well, this issue of a non-binary orientation where you don't want to be a she or a he, that's a refinement. It wasn't something going on officially, certainly not in language 300 years ago, but frankly, look what happened to them. So it seems to me that it's a refinement. However, I know that that's not all that people are thinking. People are also thinking this. They're worried about the slippery slope. If we allow the new, new they, then the next step might be for people to say that everybody should be addressed as they, unless otherwise notified, or maybe everybody should just be a they and we should try to get rid of he and she. And there's some scattered calls for that. You know, the polite thing being that everybody's a they unless otherwise notified. And I can very much imagine some people saying, why don't we just have everybody be a they and get rid of the whole idea that we have to mark in language this distinction between people with boy parts and people with girl parts. Okay, that would be an interesting proposal. I can wrap my head around somebody who would propose it. But to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that there's a slippery slope that we would need to worry about here. This is my guess on this. If people called for they to be used in that way, it would be about as popular as the term Latinx is. Latinx is a very popular way of referring to Latino people without gender marking among a certain college town slash activist group of people. And that's great, but it doesn't seem to be gaining any purchase beyond that. I live in a neighborhood where every second person lives in Spanish, and I have never once heard any of the people just walking around in the street using Latinx. And you don't get the feeling they're going to. Surveys make it pretty clear. That's the way it is. Calls to have they be universal and to marginalize he and she completely, that'll get about as far as Latinx. And I don't think there's anything wrong with there being a register that is used primarily by highly educated people as opposed to the vast majority of people. The sky isn't going to fall if that happens. But I think that entities that called for they to be used that way would see their enrollments fall and the bottom line would start to call the tune. I wouldn't worry about that slippery slope. But then there is another one. There are people who are telling me, and I completely get what they mean, that this business of using new, new they isn't just some linguistic development, but it's part of a whole new mindset, a whole new approach to sex slash gender, where not only is it about pronouns, but it's about 
kids making decisions about not only their identities, but their bodies before they're possibly of age to be able to make that decision responsibly, decisions being imposed on kids by their parents for the same reasons, issues of who should use which restrooms and why, issues of what sort of person ought to be allowed to compete against what other sort of person in sports, issues of how to deal with gender dysphoria, whether gender dysphoria is something treatable by psychologists and psychiatrists as opposed to something which is just so permanent that we should accept it as fact. These are very thorny issues. And I must say that as somebody who's hosting a language podcast, it's quite impossible for me to sound off with opinions about those sorts of things. All of it is very new to me and I'm working it out. But I would say this, I don't quite understand the argument that teaching people to use they in the new, new way must necessarily mean that you're opening the door to unconsidered approaches to all of these other things. And you know what it sounds to me like? It sounds like someone saying, don't teach slavery or racism in schools at all, because that could lead to people using the excesses of critical race theory and teaching students that if they're black, they're permanently oppressed, and if they're white, they're oppressors, and teaching students that all intellectual, artistic, and moral endeavors should be about overturning power differentials and the like, i.e. the critical race theory that many people, and in my opinion, if I may give one, they are correct, are so worried about. Well, how about this? Teaching slavery and racism could, under some circumstances, be used as a gateway drug to teaching people that they live in hell when they're seven or eight years old. But notice how rash the argument sounds. Would that happen enough? Or is teaching slavery and racism important in other ways such that you could at least try that and just hope, and maybe even work, depending on how societal consensus falls, to keep the excesses from following in their wake? To me, that's what's going on here. So the new, new they does not mean that we're making decisions about how to handle gender dysphoria and what parents should allow their children to do to themselves and at what age. In general, I think, and I've sometimes considered writing a book about this and then realized nobody would read it, but it's a major issue. The slippery slope argument, in my opinion, is over applied. And I just don't see it with these pronouns. Societal change happens via compromise, slowly, and with a lot of fighting, but it happens via compromise. And I see they as a kind of progress that could happen without opening the gates to things that truly disturb and even appall other people. Society has to decide, but things happen slowly, and I think that the pronoun could happen even theoretically without any of the rest of it happening depending on how society ends up falling on those questions. You know, it's, it's about change, and endless change can feel disorienting. I know I'm supposed to say at this point that things are changing in our society faster than ever, but do you notice that people are generally saying that about American society at all times? And I'm not sure that it's ever not been true in my lifetime, but... Still, things are always changing and it's disorienting. It's like buildings being constantly torn down and being thrown back up. It's like that happening in Manhattan. You could write a song about it. Irving Berlin did write a song about it. It was for the musical Face the Music in the Depression in 1931. It was called Manhattan Madness. I'm not sure why Manhattan Madness isn't sung more than it is because it really is a great little song 
And frankly, New York is still exactly like this. 90 years later, so much has changed, but it's still all about things constantly being torn down and put back up and you never quite know where you are. Manhattan, 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 Manhattan madness. You've got me at last. I'm like a fly upon a steeple watching seven million people do a rhythm that draws me with them. Manhattan, 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 Manhattan madness. You're going too fast. I'm like a baby on a rocker watching Father Knickerbocker being busy. I'm getting dizzy. When shadows creep in my bed, I tumble. But There's never a bonus sleep, to this episode. To get the bonus, you have to actually sign up and pay something at booksmartstudios.org. And what's in the bonus? is actually my opinions about the latest Native American archaeological findings and their implications for language. Now, I started to put that as kind of a coda to this episode, but I think that'd be a little tone deaf. The new, new they issues are rather emotional for many. I can't then all of a sudden just do a hairpin turn. So you get it as a bonus, but you won't know what I think about language and the latest findings about Native Americans and where they were and when, unless you actually join up with booksmartstudios.org. But you know, there's somebody who gets a free bonus. And that is Becky Luskin. Becky Luskin, it is your 40th birthday, and your husband has asked me to let you know that I know it here. And so, yes, you and I are both turning 40 this year, except I'm 56 on October 6th. But happy birthday to you, Becky. This is your day and not mine. Or I presume that it was rather recently. In any case, if you'd like to leave a comment or check out our other great podcast, Banished and Bully Pulpit, or subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producers are Matthew Schwartz and, as always, Mike Volo. That catchy theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services. Those sister podcasts, again, are Banished with Amna Khalid and Bully Pulpit with Bob Garfield. And this podcast is Lexicon Valley, and I am John McWhorter.